Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your co-host Kyle Tibbetts, joined by my fellow co-host Alex Kahn. For episode number five, we pick up with part two of our conversation with James Bashera at his house in San Francisco and dive deeper into this notion that mental health is wealth. James is a modern day renaissance man, an entrepreneur, angel investor, podcaster, author, musician. He's a prolific creator who operates with passion and he's probably one of the most honest entrepreneurs I've ever met. James founded three startups, including Tilt, which was acquired by Airbnb in 2017, where he became global head of Airbnb Music. James has angel invested in dozens of startups like Gusto, Mercury Bank, Halo Top Ice Cream, Bolt, and many others, including several multi-billion dollar companies and is now a full-time angel investor. This year, he launched the Below the Line podcast, which is without any exaggeration, my favorite new podcast of 2019. James has a book coming out next month called Beyond Coffee, which you can check out at beyondcoffeebook.com and you can follow him on Twitter at James Bashera. We're jumping back into this discussion a little before the end of part one. Alex and I had just asked James about his transition into angel investing after selling his company to Airbnb. And in typical James fashion, he went below the line to give us the very real and honest version of that story. We hope you enjoy the episode. And, and so we ultimately had to, to sell to Airbnb. And um, and so we sold and, and basically it was just fire sale. It was like 95% of our value uh, was was cut down in Airbnb. Um, you know, I, I guess from beginning to end, I would have been happy with it, but we flew really close to the sun. We got we got really close to building something really special, um, and uh, and had a really hefty valuation, high profile, all these things that you just talk about self sabotage. You just don't. I wouldn't come within ten miles of doing again uh, in mm. my next uh, company, but made all of these mistakes, went through this painful process, and I was like, I just want to help prevent this from happening to other people as much as possible and at that point maybe i'd invested in 13 or 14 companies and, and so i was like all right not only do i love guiding other young founders but um i'm going to do this more as uh, uh as i have a little bit more free time and and um and being an executive at airbnb rather than the founder so did it a little bit more loved it honestly felt like it was god's work like i was like this is uh perhaps the the highest leverage thing i can be doing is helping other founders and thought i was going to be an executive coach um so the reason i started the podcast was was also just trying to understand founder psychology or creator psychology a concept that that um you know we have sports psychology but Mm -hmm. we, we don't have business psychology and and um and i was and i wondered over the last few years why we don't study psychology of creation what is normal why so many founders myself included um you guys probably the same with this podcast you just have to piecemeal like oh no this is normal right oh yeah i think someone mentioned something like this and it's this psychology or this feeling right it's normal mm-hmm. like you know in these these internal uh conversations just wanted to externalize them with podcast and and um and enjoy doing that in one-on-one settings with with coaching so thought that I was going to be executive coach. And then, um, I thought, well, I, you know, I've invested, uh, you know, to this point done decently well, actually financially, I could do that full time yeah. and use it as a chance just to advise other, other founders and, and then probably start something on my own again. It's so interesting because you went through this very intense experience. You said there were maybe four months of building tilt that felt like you were kind of on top of the world and the rest was kind of being behind the eight ball and being super stressed out. And it's so interesting because on the other side of it, on this side of that experience, 
people sometimes talk about you go through something and it's not really about you. It's the people that you're going to help through that experience on the other side. And I think that being able to sit down with founders, have honest and real conversations, maybe invest, maybe enter them to other investors, but really get real with them about founder psychology, about the challenges of building a company. You would not be in a position to do that had you not gone through that experience. That experience enabled you to do that. Do you, do you kind of have that perspective now that, wow, it actually has set me on this whole other path to helping other founders that I would not have been on had I not gone through that trial? Well, uh, for sure. I never, I never went through it thinking... Um, I wish I could avoid this. Just to be clear, I went through it and was like, this is, I mean, there was, there was a moment where I was just breaking down in tears in the bathroom in my wife's uh, parents' house um, and, and just breaking down in tears, um, couldn't stand up and, and just was definitely thinking, what the hell is happening? This is how will I get through this? But the whole time I, I was never thinking, I wish I wasn't in this position. And, and I had already been through really tough things in life uh, early on that I, I had already somehow, um, somehow acquired the mindset of things happen for you, not to you. And so I was going through it. My wife and I talk about this to this day when there's you know, challenges. Um, and we were talking about this an hour ago. Um, you can choose to, to think about these things as, as not that you chose them to happen, but you could always sit there and imagine, what if I chose this? Hmm. What, what would be the blessing within this to where I would choose this? And many of us choose to go to the gym and put your muscles through intense stress voluntarily uh, you know on purpose so why not put your spirit through through stress so that uh you can build up uh, some muscle there as well that's awesome that's really uh really well said maybe on a related note i've heard you mention this kind of mantra mental health as wealth i think it's in your twitter bio too and maybe you've already started to unpack this but could you unpack what that means for you yeah so i think about the, the concept of mental wealth pretty often and i think it's um the little background is um my sister at 15 she took her own life um, and, and I was the one that found her and it was really, really, um, obviously a tragic experience for our entire family. And for me personally, I couldn't sleep for two years, uh, very well, I had to sleep with the lights on and, and it was a really, really, um, tough time. And I, that was one of those early experiences where fast forward two, three, four years, and I felt like it's even in that, uh, the thing that I would have never desired, um, and I've chatted about this on the podcast, that it felt like it was just one of different things that happened for me instead of to me. And, um, and thought, how can this be something that is happening for me to me? And it really stretches your imagination. But when you start to create space for that, and when you start to stretch your imagination over things that uh, you would conceivably think are the hardest things to go through, and you can incorporate that into how's this happening for me, then it obviously you know becomes easier and easier when when things are far less tragic. Um, and that was part of the backdrop of that experience or that that kind of that spiritual stress and saying, okay, well, you got through that and better for it, stronger for it. And then add into it just um, the, uh, I've had multiple family members hospitalized with mental health issues. I've gone through uh, periods of depression in my own life, especially during Tilt in the last nine, 10 months. It was, it was uh, a pretty, pretty hefty dose of circumstantial depression. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that our notions of mental health and, and mental illness are really two different concepts, but we decided to kind of uh, conflated the two. We think about things like just, it's kind of like health 20 years ago. It's just like illness. We only think about health when you're sick rather than preventative. And I think, you know, hopefully we're, we're not 20 years away from this, but uh, I try to start the conversation around let's, let's approach mental health. Like we, like we started to approach health 20 years ago, diet, nutrition, exercise, and in a similar vein, approach mental health with a preventative lens 
rather than an acute treatment lens, which is just when you mention mental health, everyone thinks today in 2019, oh, depression, oh, anxiety, insomnia, you know, mention whatever illness it is. Rather than mental health is actually, we should view it like investing in anything else we invest yeah, it's incrementally. Being human. And, it's a yes. dimension to being human that is completely unavoidable. And we will all have our mental health tested, just like we're all, you know, we all have our physical health tested and probably on the same par. I mean, it's like you, you have a, we have a two-year-old and so, you know, we'd get colds every four weeks uh, and, and you get these really trying moments every week or every four weeks. And if you approach it in terms of like, okay, I want to invest in this space, um, I want to invest in mental, my mental wealth, then it really flips your, your view on mentality or mental health. And so um, that was kind of the backdrop. And then you, the bookend is you fast forward to today and it's, you know, that phrase health is wealth. I think you and I, or, you know, Alex, we could all be healthy um, physically, but have uh, a mental state of depression. And that's not wealth just because we, you know, can get up and walk around, that's not wealth. And so I don't think even health is wealth. I think you could actually be a, I have a paraplegic uh, neighbor uh, who is one of the happiest people I know. And he does not have physical health, but he is a wealthy individual, uh, you know, mentally speaking and, and just spiritually speaking. And it's because his mental health is, is, uh, is something that whether he consciously is thinking about it or not, he invests in, you know, positive outlook, he invests in, uh, just you know, social relationships invests in mental health in a way that you know someone might think about investing in their, I don't know, their uh, financial health. So, if you had to throw out one thing or maybe a, a few things, what would be kind of your mental health toolbox? What are some of the tips and tricks you have in there? Yeah. So, in this book that's coming out in November uh, called Beyond Coffee, it's really just this talk about not. Great Gatsby. This is like a light encyclopedia of nootropics, adaptogens, and mushrooms. Just basically things beyond just coffee every day. That you know, that's our productivity diet in America is five coffees a day. And um, I talk a little bit about a little bit about this in the book that the, this this idea of like exogenous compounds or external compounds that really should be fifth on the list. But they're pretty pretty powerful. So things like turmeric for uh, anti-inflammation or motivation. Turmeric is, has been clinically shown as powerful as Prozac for uh, its antidepressive um, uh, properties. There you go. There you go. You're <laughs> drinking some turmeric right now. I, exactly. I will be shortly after my liquid death. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Liquid death water, by the way. Everybody go out and get some liquid death water. I'll chase it water. with some raw uh, juicery probiotic. There you yeah. go. It is, uh, it is, uh, I'm a, I'm a investor and big fan of liquid death water. Uh, hilarious brand. But uh, the, um, the book talks about this in the introduction, um, and and people can go to beyondcoffeebook.com and, and put in their email address to find out when the book comes out. But the list is it's five things. It's sleep, diet, exercise, stress management, and then what you're putting in your body, exogenous compounds. So I view my mental wealth in terms of how, how able am I to get into a productive groove in the day, in the week, and in a month, and... and um, yeah, I love being productive. Uh, I feel like I'm happiest when I'm being as useful as possible to those around me. And, and so it's, yeah, it's a really simple checklist. Sleep, there's two big tips that I that I was told by a sleep doctor that totally rocked my world. And I view it kind of like a pyramid. So sleep is the most important foundation. You know, you can do everything else on this list. You could meditate five hours a day. And if you're sleeping two hours a day, right. you're going to you're going to mess with your ability to be useful or your uh, ability to enjoy life. Um, and so it's super simple, foundational, but sleep, wake up every morning at the same time every day. Just wake up every morning, same time. Do it seven, eight days in a row and just test it out on your own. On that eighth, ninth day, see how quickly you're able to get into a productive groove from waking up and, and you'll see it's, it's really profound. And our circadian rhythms, you know, they're 24 hours. It's not just when you fall asleep and when you wake up. Um, so getting into a great biological circadian rhythm for 24 hours. Wake up every morning at the same time. Um, this is going to be way more than you, than you bargained for. No, this, this, this is fantastic. Awesome, but I, I think about I'm, this. Unlike the food pyramid, which is a pyramid of lies, it sounds like a pyramid <laughs> <Yeah>. of truth. <laughs> Replace breads all day, every day with sleep. Um, the second thing is exercise or diet. So, um, and this one's more about, for me personally, uh, not drinking. 
is I don't really drink and it is one of the the best things that I do for productivity, for energy. Um, and it's because, I, and this is just in the research, um, when you have more than two drinks, uh, I tell people, try to limit it to four drinks uh, a week. And um, and the, the sleep research just shows that uh, when you have anything over a single drink at night, it's like losing 30 minutes of sleep that mm. night. So if you have four drinks, you know- Two you, hours. Yeah, you, you sleep, quote unquote, seven and a half hours, you basically had five and a half hours of sleep. And, and when you have less sleep, you're going to degrade the IQ you're operating in the next day. Um, so diet, it's eat whole foods, which are great, but even more important, I think, is just try to limit um, the amount that we drink. And it's, again, culturally just so weird how we encourage probably, I mean, definitely in Dallas where I'm from, it's probably 10 drinks a week is like encouraged and mm-hmm. uh and and then socially just acceptable and that's going to be atrocious for your sleep um so diet whole foods limiting sleep third is uh is exercise three times a week of 15 minute uh 15 minutes of of strenuous aerobic exercise gets your blood flow going activates your own anti-inflammation so as we age after 30 you still have the pro-inflammation response of you know when you're uh when you're stressed or when you have like a, uh, you know, maybe you eat something you're slightly allergic to, or you, I don't know, you work out the day before you have the pro-inflammation response that you have when you're 16, but you don't have the anti-inflammation response. So that's why, you know, you sprain an ankle when you're 38 and you're like, why the hell is this taking two weeks to heal when at 18, it would have been maybe four days. It's because your anti-inflammation uh, response is not, it's not spurred. Exercise is the best way to spur your, your natural anti-inflammation. Um, so aerobic exercise, 15 minutes uh, a day for three days, or 15 minutes for three times a week. Fourth, uh, stress management. And it's really what I wrote my friend. Um, it is, uh, it's basically, if you can practice you know, mindfulness practice of, of some sort, some people really love you know, yoga, some people really love sitting quietly and meditating, uh, or transcendental meditation. Um, in the morning's afternoons, evening, doesn't matter when it is, but it's really, really helpful for, uh, for stress management. Practicing the art of under committing. I, I don't hear people talk enough about that because it, paradoxically, in productivity, you think go fast, go fast, go fast. The opening of the podcast yeah. is con, you know, confusing motion. Just with because progress. you're doing more things not doesn't mean you're getting more done or whatever. Uh, exactly. Denzel says on the intro. No, and, I remember. He says, he literally says, yeah. uh, it's like don't confuse motion with progress. That's and it's right. so true. It's so uh, true. 10 steps in the wrong direction is not fucking not progress. progress. Well, speaking of, you, you mentioned how society kind of encourages us to drink. When was the last time you heard? anyone say oh look at how impressive that guy is he's turned down a bunch of work or he's rejected some invitations it's always whoever's doing the most gets the most credit i mean those are the people that we're focused on right right and we're not encouraging people to say look at james over there he's taking care of his his mental health his mental wellness sure by making the right decisions for him right it's you know all talk about honesty all of the storytelling we've ever had at best, it's opinion, and it's just selection of people's. It's selection of facts. It's like, oh, this is the story of person X or of company Y, and it's just a selection. At, at totally. best, it's opinion, and it's just there's no such thing as like you have you have cataloged every fact, and this is the sequential order. You're just selecting. At best, at worst, it's just a lie. It's complete fabrication and or partial fabrication. And you know they used to talk about people like. Um, like Ronald Reagan would sleep four hours a night because he was so productive. And we tell these stories and these stories. I think one of the, I think it's like the, the cancer of our mind, the epidemic of our minds, talk about mental uh, health and mental wealth, the epidemic of our minds that has been so cancerous it, are stories. Are, whether it's this false narrative of like the individual hero, um, they're super entertaining you know, it's it would be hard to tell a story that could be as successful for I don't know five thousand years as Beowulf of like no, it was really like twenty seven people that came together and you know it's like I don't know uh, it, there's twenty seven different characters to keep in mind. It's just that won't yeah that won't stick in our minds. Um, but the stories then get told to where it's like let's just embellish this or embellish that, and it's solving some purpose. It's like the creation myth of a of a startup. It's like mm-hmm. oh, it's solving 
for like, you know, rallying people around. It's getting people excited. It's, you know, the how we built this story uh, on NPR. And the reason that pisses me off so much bothers me so much because it is one comparison is is the thief of joy as the as the quote goes and so we're all comparing ourselves to these other stories or the these other narratives you know alex you asked about like the stress of of running a company i was six months into building tilt and and it was after on the heels of me saying i'm never going to do this again six months in and i was like what am i doing why the hell did i decide to do this again i was sitting with a friend uh in dallas texas um, and, and I was just, I remember just a few months in to, in a five and a half year journey, I was like, what did I do this for? It was really stressful the whole time. And it was because I would compare myself to these stories that at the time I had no idea were total bullshit. And if comparison is the thief of joy and this comparison to these stories, um, lead to so much misery in our own, like our own versions or our own realities that don't match up to this, this podcast or this blog post or this uh, interview of someone else's story. The reason I think these stories are so dangerous and they uh, bother me so much is because it's not even comparison to the thief of joy. It's the comparison to the fake, which is, I think the thief of, of innovation and progress at large. Yeah. So many of us, so many great entrepreneurs will quit eight months in because they're like, well, it's not worth a billion dollars eight months in like, you know, like Instagram was. Mm-hmm. Not knowing the real, the real freaking story of Instagram was they, they messed up so bad they had to completely rebrand and rebuild the product from scratch. Wasn't it called bourbon originally? Right. right. It's called bourbon. Yeah. And they, for a year, it was so uh, you know, dead in the water that then they had to completely start from scratch. It was not the story that they would tell as they launched. And then I think it was like, we launched and then uh, 50,000 users within a week. Maybe it was 30,000. It's because they had like 22,000 users from Bourbon. I remember reading that story. And this is like Instagram's the canonical version of sure. like, you know, nothing 12, to a billion Only 12 dollars. employees. Yes, you know, exactly. The whole thing. And it's a billion dollar uh, acquisition, um, you know, whatever it was, two years in, 18 months in. And the truth is like, I don't know the truth. That's the real truth yeah. is none of us know the truth. But as I learned the story more and more, I learned, oh, they actually fucked up so bad with this previous company that they had to rebrand. It wasn't this start to seven days. Sure, or 30, Slack, 30, right? 000. Starting off as it was Stewart's second gaming company. Right. And it was going disastrously. And they had this internal tool. Layoffs of like 80% of the staff. Yeah, it feels cool. like it's a cultural epidemic. And you mentioned it's sort of this cancer psychologically that's spread. And I think, Alex, you mentioned how our attention spans are shortening. So these really, really short viral stories that are sound bites that kind of maybe rhyme with the truth, they could have zero connection to the truth. They spread like wildfire and they kind of come in and out of our attention spans briefly. I think it's more insidious than that. They don't yeah. even rhyme with the truth. They rhyme with the models we have been told from the fake They rhyme with the lie that's been told enough times that it sounds like the truth. Right. They, Maybe that's they, the they rhyme with the comic book version of uh-huh. how things happen. And how do you think, I mean, obviously, individually, there's little things we can do to unwind that, but how culturally do we start to unwind that? Because I think it is a big problem. I think if you look at every dimension of society, you can look at politics, you can look at our health, you can look at how we relate socially with each other. And it's weird. It's this frenetic, kind of mimetic, weird time to to be alive and everything feels very fast and accelerated. What are some broad things we can do uh, as a society to start to unwind it? Sure, individually, meditation. Um, uh, you know, having one-on-one conversations that are, that are longer form and deeper, but what are some things maybe outside of that that we could do? I think it's already happening. I think we literally just get to sit back and the wave is starting. I think there's going to be a bull market on truth in this next decade and, and the stark contrast to this last decade of filters, polished stories, uh, and, and, you know, fake news. I mean, we, we had reached such a zenith of inauthenticity culturally societally i mean it's just even in the entrepreneurial realm i think why um below the line people seem to like it a few months in is because um and maybe this is why you might dig it kyle and alex is is because you're like oh that actually maps to reality and i think it's because we've had this explosion of interest around startups None of us have had the stories. None of these explosion of entrepreneurs have had the stories that they kept reading about for year after year after year. And then we kind of all just collectively are starting to look around and be like, 
even the stories we read about aren't the real versions. Yeah. And my story wasn't that real version. And now I have like 17 other founder friends that also didn't have this, this version of, of this story. Actually, you know, maybe it was just BS or sure. maybe it just, and I don't, I don't even know if it was, um, bullshit as much as it just was the message that was required for that snippet medium for that you can't mention the three times you launch airbnb to to no great reception you can't mention that three times that fourth time that you're yeah, launching TechCrunch doesn't want to write that article three times they you only hear that seven eight years in and they only tell the serial story after you've succeeded right. after you no succeeded. one tells the serial story in the middle of making cereal right right no one is saying hey check it out we just sold 40,000 boxes of cereal to save our, you know, rental company. Sure. Like you don't mention that. No. And so you don't hear that um, when it's happening. You don't hear the full version, uh, even when, at least we haven't conventionally, even when it's time to hear the full version, because, you know, a TechCrunch blog post, just it's 800 words. You can't fit it in. So I think that what we can do collectively is... I think it's already happening. There's a yearning for that mm-hmm. uh, truth. I think there are these kudos being given to the people that are speaking the the unvarnished truth of their own stories or what it's been like. And and I think you have, there are enough people and there are great founders out there that are dying to tell the Absolutely. truth. Absolutely. Well, and I think, think, I think starting y- you having these conversations with different founders, you know, Justin Kahn and others that are very honest gives permission for other founders to feel like they can do it too. And so hopefully there can be a viral wave of truth that kind of is the counterculture against the decades of just nonsense and and fakeness, for lack of a better word, that we've had for a long time. I'm bullish that there is a huge market for truth. I think to put it into kind of startup-y terms, whether it's your podcast or whether it's apps like com.com that are pushing for, you know, when I first heard that app pitched, I'm like, what? I was probably 22, 23 when I first heard about it. I'm like, meditations for hippies is literally what I thought. I was sitting in right. Berkeley, by the way, when I when I, <laughs> I think I first saw the CEO, the Alex, getting interviewed. But I do think the market is there. And I think content and I think companies that really service truth will find product market fit. And they'll find it quickly, right? Because so much of what the world is selling is is not that. So hopefully uh, that's what we see over the next five to 10 years. Right, so I think it's, it's just the interest in it um, is what will create uh, the supply of it. And I think it's, and it's, um, and it's so easy to supply. We all have the truth right at our fingertips, right, uh, right within us to start talking about it. And it's, uh, you, know, you present the demand, uh, I think we're gonna see a, a, a flourish of supply. Well, uh, this has been super interesting, uh, James, and we could probably chat all day if it was uh, up to me and Kyle, but we do want to be respectful of your time. We'll go to these kind of rapid fire questions that we ask every guest, uh, starting with what's something that you believe that most people don't? I think there's a handful of things uh, that that my friends even here in the Valley uh, think that are kind of silly but one of the things that um i don't know how many people believe this or not but i think the the single biggest cultural trend most most important cultural trend that's happening right now is podcasting i I actually think that it's and it's you know you have um maybe one maybe one and a half percent of the world that's that is listening to podcasts uh in the u.s uh much higher but it is um i think it's the most important thing in the world uh, right now, we over the next fifty years, we've got a lot of big problems that we need to solve, and it's going to require uh, it's going to require a vastly improved collective consciousness. And I think there isn't a better uh, a better tool for the job than being able to hear these types of in depth conversations while you're on your way to work, while you're working out, while you're doing the dishes, while you're doing other things. You get to hear uh, on you know I just cannot believe i get to hear an expert talk with another expert on a podcast for, for free it's crazy for free crazy. and learn what they're talking about and i think it's you know you just we to solve those problems we need to uh confront our own ignorance mm-hmm. and there's no better way to do that than to listen to someone really smart and be like holy shit i that person is really really smart on a topic that i now 
starting to doubt whether I was thinking about it correctly or not. And uh, and and I think it's there's no part of life, politics, uh, career, health, hobbies, spirituality. I don't think there's a single part of life that is not going to be uh, impacted by podcasting like and like we touched on 30 minutes ago or so it's like this little six little word and it's like oh no it's just one of many things that are sure. happening right now we already have phones we don't need a smartphone right i can exactly. call i can call my grandma you know exactly. what's on? the difference between podcasting and a book but i love to sit down and read and sure. i get that that people like to read people like a, a movie but it's like you know a podcast the threshold to consume it is i don't know three inches versus a six foot fence and uh, you're buying a book for 20 bucks, sitting down for 12 hours to read it when it, in, in truth, so many books are, I don't know, they really should be a two hour read. Podcasts, I think, are just going to change uh, incrementally, day by day, change our collective consciousness. Um, and I think most people probably don't years. believe that. So I think that is a bit of a contrarian take for sure. I think in Silicon Valley, it's, no, one, no one has even developed a thread of talking about this because they haven't figured out a way to commercialize it. No. And it's, I don't think it's going to be commercializable like, smartphone adoption or mm-hmm. you know, mo- you know the, the shift to mobile i don't think it's going to be as commercializable just like you know the gutenberg press you, you couldn't just set up a monopoly around gutenberg sure. press but it was obviously massively uh socially impactful i think for for uh podcasting maybe it's more like just the general internet where mm-hmm. it's like oh there's no way to just monopolize the internet like you know apple has for mobile you know the shift to mobile phones but that doesn't mean it's going to be any less impactful. Well, it's interesting as well because there's a lot of talk about, and we didn't talk about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, and it's not something that I'm particularly interested in compared to some people that are super, super bullish on it. But what's interesting with the idea of like decentralized money with podcasts and the ability to create them for next to nothing and to provide them to listeners for next to nothing, it's decentralized conversation. It's decentralized ideas. It's decentralized narratives, hash- it's, narratives, it's, nuance, it's, all of it, right? And it's, it's so I think... It's easy to underestimate how powerful that is, particularly in a world that's become so, again, soundbite, crazy, ADD. We're going to need long-form conversations to solve serious problems. And frankly, the old media model is, is breaking down before our very eyes. We're seeing it just fall apart. I mean, it's it's just, it is, you know, I, don't know, I tweeted about this yesterday um, that, yeah, it's just, when you think about the differences between, so on your phone, you can choose between the album from your favorite band, a podcast, uh, even a Netflix show uh, or a YouTube video. And they seem like it's just, you're just pulling off of a shelf and they're all the same, but the cost of production, the cost of distribution, so wildly different. Mm -hmm. You and I can have this conversation today and you can distribute it globally tomorrow. After writing this book, I'm like, oh shit, what did I sign up for to write this? The the book that the podcast uh, Below the Line is really around because it is so hard. This is 10 months in the making. And... This podcast, it could be an idea today, and it's globally distributed for free tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, every economic, uh, every efficiency you'd look for, uh, podcasts crush everything else. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, from the consumer perspective, I think it does look like it's one of four, five, six different choices. But uh, as we know from software development, it's all about cycles yep. and development cycles. The, the Encyclopedia Britannica, it's you know, it was edited every three years, thirty years ago. Wikipedia during this episode has been edited 30 times mm-hmm. and uh, for free. I think podcasting became more or less somewhat uh, a mainstream media choice maybe in 2015 for us because it took a, a long time for the great content creators to switch over. Right. Um, Serial kind of you know, got it started, but it actually took a few years before people were like, oh, well, let's start switching our resources over to this uh, medium. And I think it will be like, you know, the internet where it's not every website is great, sure. but the the innovation will allow for 20, 30, 100 amazing services in your life that you use on a regular basis. Similarly, podcast, not everyone's going to be uh, great, but Paradox podcast, four years, it's going to be one of the ones that we're going to. You heard it here uh, first, folks. Exactly. We're an going endorsement to. from from James. That's awesome. Well, you're still early on, so yeah, yeah we're very early. Is, but you're right. Uh, tighter uh, iteration cycles, the ability to ship fast and ship globally, the ability for, for us for to consume it for insane. free. Yeah, it's crazy. Next question: What's a problem that you're concerned about that most people aren't, or that you think people don't pay enough attention to? I know we talked about mental health. That could be one obvious answer, but you feel free to take that in any direction that you want. 
So like with something, what's common sense that for most people that, that might not be. Yeah. Something that most people are really concerned about. It's taking up a lot of mental space. They're talking about it that you actually don't think is a problem. It could be a societal thing. It could be something, it could be anything. So so I listened to, uh, I love this philosopher, Alan Watts. I talk about him on the podcast pretty often and, and, and I think it'll be just one of the 20th centuries, you know, most influential philosophers. And he just happened to record so much, it was, you know, 500 years ago, you couldn't have a microphone in front of a philosopher. He just happened to record everything. And it's, a lot of it is free. Um, and, um, and he had one, one lecture where he, he said, uh, he basically said, uh, we don't know what we want. No one knows what they want. And they don't know what they want for uh, one of two reasons. One reason is there is no you to want something. There's no static you. You were different 10 years ago. You're different 20 years ago. And if you're different 10 years ago, five years ago than you are today, and you're constantly changing, then you're different a year ago from today. There is no static you. The thing that you started, I don't know, your PhD program, you started 22, you graduated 29, and and you're like, oh my God, what did I do? Uh, so you don't know what you want either for that reason. You don't, um, you know, there is no you to want something, static you to want something, and then get it five years later and be like, yes, got it. Or maybe even more interesting, you don't know what you want because we don't know what we want because we already have it. Because maybe there's some sick implication in the question of what do you want that is you don't have what you want. When I heard that lecture, totally blew my mind. Mm. And so the thing that I think a lot about, and friends of mine know that I mentioned this uh, pretty uh, often over the years, that I think we have what we want in so many circumstances in life. And I'd say the common sense viewpoint or the widely held viewpoint is uh, quite uh, kind of um, sickly implicated in that question of what do you want? We're always being asked, what do we want? What do we want? We're want. being trained to want. You're always is you lacking something. You there's want. a deficit. There's something that you're trying to attain. And I think some of that's living in a consumerist culture. Some of that's being human and having wants and desires and needs. But you're right. Maybe the question's wrong. Maybe it should be completely reframed. Right. Um, so that I'd say that's the... Uh, I mean, if, if you could have this, um, if you could change pursuit with, with observation or train, you know, just, I don't know, switch it up and train different muscles mm-hmm. uh, instead of pursuit, but it's observation. Uh, I think yeah, just about every person that, would, that could apply that to themselves would be happier. Along those same lines, what's a problem that you think most people are? too concerned about what's something that are too many too much worry too many priorities what have you are going into that you think is maybe not that big of a deal i know i know that uh that you want this to be rapid fire but i want to try to give a good answer no Um, take your time take take your time um i think in general how we try to solve problems is really uh you can't fight a hundred battles at once and anyone that does, anyone that's been in a startup realizes you can't fight 10. Focus on the task at hand. And uh, Buckminster Fuller used to talk about uh, this concept of network theory, that the network is smarter than the individual. And so I think in general, we worry so much about 100 different, you know, I mentioned over the next 50 years, we're going to have re- really big problems to solve. But I think the best way for us to solve them is for all of us to say, okay, what's What's the one problem area that I really want to deeply understand before I'm just jumping into solution territory, deeply understand this problem area. And then I want to try to solve that one focused problem area. One of the things that, that uh, is contributing to so much unneeded worry is worrying about 50 different problems when really, according to kind of the concept of network theories, the network is so much smarter than the individual. We all can kind of sit back and chill because we have especially today, a more connected network than ever before, the network will solve so many of these things, just like the network has solved so many problems that we just falsely thought were going to be. If you go, just look up a time cover story from 1984, 1983, 1982. Do this as an exercise for 20 minutes. The existential threats (laughs) that they would put on the cover, none of them are problems anymore. None of them are problems anymore. Whenever I mention this, people, they're like, no, but we need to take action on the environment today. It's like, well, I want to do my part, 
but I'm not a really educated environmentalist. My focus is an increasing courage around me for creation. And maybe I can be helpful in encouraging someone with an entrepreneurial idea towards environmentalism. Pachama, by the way, great startup. Mm. Uh, huge, huge fan of uh, Pachama and, and their approach to uh, uh, carbon credit uh, marketplaces. But the, uh, I can maybe do that, but I'm not going to be the person that figures out how to desalinate water or that figures out you know, uh, how to get us off of uh, fossil fuels. I really want to stay in my area of competency. Yeah. You want to inspire the next Elon Musk to put a bunch of solar panels, uh, you know, roofing panels uh, on if I could be millions so of homes across California, right? Something like that. Right. It's uh, So I think it's um, just trust in the network. And it's like, that sounds honestly to people in Silicon Valley, so many of my friends, it's like blasphemous um, to these hardcore, uh, um, you know, these friends that are vegans. And, I, and I'm like, I... I do feel a calling to become a vegetarian. Uh, I've done it before and I feel a calling to become a vegetarian again, but um, you're so convinced um, out of the 15 different things you care about, you're so convinced you have the solution for this and the solution is to change everyone's preferences. And I, I actually don't think that that is going to be nearly as effective as uh, you, you see things like you know plant-based meats or, sure. or lab-grown meats. And it's, to me, it's like obvious. That is going to do far Absolutely. more than just trying to change people's preferences to say, look, I know that tastes better. I know that burger tastes good, James. Put down the burger. cheese isn't as good, but you just do it <laughs> no, for all of us. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's like, yeah, that is a, it's a big problem. But, uh, but I think the network is going to solve it. And you can see these seeds of solutions. And I think the most valuable thing we can all do is, is just say, okay, what's the little province I want to become really, yeah. really good at understanding the problem set so that I can then maybe in 10 years, I was, I was with uh, a piano composer last night and, uh, and he's asking me about my compositions and, and I've got a few followers on SoundCloud and I, mm-hmm. I created my fourth We'll follow you. you. Uh, we got a couple more today. Please do. Yeah, working man. And uh, it's uh, my fourth attempt at creating. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to give it 10 years. Or, you know, just put the long the long time horizon on it and, and maybe it'll it'll be something in 10 years. And he goes, that's being optimistic. <laughs> and, and so I think that's what we can all do is put 20 years on a problem that you really care about, maybe 30, yeah. and just focus on, on that one thing you care about. I think maybe part of why you're maybe a bit of a pariah within your friends in Silicon Valley is that Silicon Valley is so biased towards action. Uh, it's all about just the painting the biggest, boldest picture of what you can solve. And doing it as fast that, as possible. And doing it as fast as possible. And everything you said is the opposite of that, right? It's, it's deciding where can I uniquely add value that actually aligns with what I can actually do? Um, let's take a longer term perspective. Let's maybe look five, 10, 15 years down the road. And I don't expect to boil the ocean myself. I'm just a node in this network of people. And it's interesting you mentioned startups, right? And in any startup at any given time, there's going to be at least 10 fires. But especially if you're an executive, your job's to find the ones that are fatal, the ones that are not fatal and let those burn and be comfortable letting them burn. And just focus on the one fire that you individually can put out that maybe someone else can't. And if we scale that up from a startup to a society, and we took that approach, and we're a little bit more long-term about it, we'd probably be in a lot better place than we are right now. Because we're doing, it's, it's almost like we're paralyzed in the sense that the challenges seem so big, and there's so many of them that we can't actually focus on the one thing that we uniquely can do. And, and it's why I, I think I try to encourage everyone I can to create in any form that they that they want to whether it's you know gardening to uh to art to music to a a, a world changing startup it does not matter i think one of the probably the the biggest um ailment to our ability to solve things is that we're not a participatory culture mm-hmm. you know we're the vast majority uh will work in organizations not be the founders or creators of the organization you go home you order food in, you watch TV, you watch four hours of, of TV a day of other people participating in life. And this is like, this takes 30 seconds of imagination. Um, if you were to film that person day to day, no one would watch it because they're not participating in anything. They are pushing things along or really just being the audience member in, in so many ways. And if you can create even whether it's cooking or whether it's uh, gardening, you can see exactly what we're talking about of 
holy shit, I need to focus. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, this is really hard. Throwing out solutions to problems I don't understand in realms that I don't really know what I'm talking about uh, for these 50 different problems, 100 different problems, talking about how the world is falling apart because of you know this problem and this problem and this problem. We need to solve all these problems. But you yourself don't recognize sure. the limitations or yeah, what you're a, is You're an armchair required. expert who's sitting there and looking at all the problems, but you need to move up the chain from being just a consumer to a contributor or even like a creator, a which creator is sort of of, even better. Of, everyone can create. It's written in our in our DNA to want to create, mm-hmm. and and it's uh, you know parenthood is a great. It's a great form of creation. I I don't know about you, Kyle, but um, it's it was a total shift, complete shift in mentality um, after having a child, and it's and it's because you go from this just yeah armchair expert to we need to pare down all of these optimistic viewpoints of what like what we would tell our our brothers and and uh, and I would tell them or think about my brothers and their kids and like think well why don't they do it this yeah, way I would do that differently yeah, I if think, I were in charge of this right. yeah you're a real expert when when uh, you're not bringing the baby home with you but then you bring the baby home from the hospital and you're like whoa everything that I thought that I knew I know so very little right uh, and it's it's harder to judge other people's parenting it's it's you start thinking about your own relationship with your parents and how difficult you must have been but exactly. yeah having a kid i mean that's talk about creation and and uh creating Discover, something it, that's, it, confronting your ignorance yeah discovering your limitations and so yeah it's uh the creation is uh i mean it's by pursuing it then you you discover just how hard it is and you have a new appreciation for one life around you the world around you everything that is created around you but you also have an appreciation for what it takes to solve some of these really big absolutely. problems absolutely I think we're down to the last question, which is, uh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? From a sleep doctor. Like I talked about, sleep doctor that said, wake up every morning at the same time. Yeah, it's, it, it's counterintuitive because people focus on when you go to sleep. But I think the forcing function, right, if I'm unpacking this a little bit is, and I, I do wake up generally around, well, I have a two-year-old like you, so or an almost two-year-old. I tend to wake up around 6, 6.30 every single day. And when you do that, your body starts to crave sleep at a consistent time in the evening. So if you stick right. with that for a week, right, your mind just starts to, you get in sort of a rhythm and a cycle on it. And I don't know the sleep science behind it, but I know just as someone who does it, that that's empirically seems true to me. Right. It's, it's uh, you know, whenever asked that over the last probably year or two, I've always given that answer. And, and obviously... I get that people um, are are expecting something to be uh, professional related or creation related, uh, but I honestly um, I think everything is it's almost like pre-programmed in us all of the good uh, that can flourish uh, within just you know the human spirit will flourish if you nail that first really really key thing, which is getting in a good rhythm each day. So you know even if you need to take a nap, even if you rage until. 2 a.m. Uh, on a Friday night, still wake up at that 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're raging until two, then maybe you're, you know, you're 24 year old, so you could wake up every day at 8:30. Totally fine. Get less sleep that morning. Take a nap in the afternoon, but keep your your biological rhythm set to waking up at you know 8:30 every morning. And and yeah, I'm like you with a with a two year old. We wake up at 6:45, and that single start to the day uh, sets in motion. Is that Archimedes lever to to a lot of other really, uh, really positive things, and and it's like you you can't you can't you know get hate for like well it's easy for you to see did that because you know your X Y Z it's like no everyone can wake up the same morning same pretty time much. every morning pretty much. Well, James, uh, you are truly a a Renaissance man. I mean, we're sitting sitting here surrounded by the awesome projects you've done below the line the podcast beyond coffee which i can't wait to read and really appreciate this copy and you said folks can find out more at uh beyondcoffeebook.com that's right if folks want to follow you uh follow what you're doing what's the kind of the best way to do that probably the best way is twitter uh at james bashara and uh and yeah it's uh i the creation today is easier than ever before so it seems like uh, it's it's a handful of different projects, but it's um, the we can all be Renaissance people. We really, I mean, it just takes rethinking 
what we think about creation. So for anyone listening, if you've ever wanted a garden to start with a house plant, start mm-hmm. small. Well, this was uh, an awesome conversation. So thank yeah, you, so James. Much. Thanks so much for uh, joining us on the Paradox Podcast. We appreciate it. Of course, guys. Kyle, Alex, thanks so much for uh, checking out Below the Line. And and uh, and I really appreciate you having me on the podcast. I love what y'all are doing with Paradox Podcast because I think it is, it is, I mean, reality is right at the intersection of Paradox. Talk about oversimplification for narrative value. Par- everything meaningful is Yeah, the essence uh, of it really is, is Paradox for sure. Right. Well, thanks, James. Thank you. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. In episode number four, we chatted with Trey Stevens, partner at Founders Fund and co-founder of Anduril Industries, about this idea that diversification is a modern disease that stems from lack of conviction. Looking back at my childhood, even, you know, we grew up and people are talking about well-roundedness and getting liberal arts degrees and diversifying assets. And really, the older I've gotten, the more it has become obvious to me that diversification in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, is just lack of conviction. It's like basically saying, uh, I don't have strong feelings about anything. And so I'm going to have very mild feelings about everything uh, as an alternative. And if you, if you like had the ability to invest money in a company that you had incredibly high conviction that it was going to be worth $100 billion, would it make sense to put even $5 of your money in like an index fund? No, that would be insane. You should put every single dollar you can afford into the company that has the $100 billion upside. And yet that's not what an asset manager today would tell you. We also talked about the changing nature of warfare in the age of technology. One way of looking at the changing face of of warfare with regards to AI in particular is on budgets. So the DoD budget projected 2020 is $733 billion. Um, $1 billion is being set aside for AI development. So that's one 733rd of the DoD budget. It would be kind of like you saying, you know, I make say $50,000 a year. I really, really love cars. I'm going to spend (laughs) one 733rd of my $50,000 a year on buying a car. And so you have like, you know, a little Tonka truck or something. That's basically what we're talking about inside the DoD. If you haven't already, be sure to check out part one of our conversation with James. A quick housekeeping note, we just launched a new website for the podcast at paradoxpodcast.co, which will have all episodes and everything you need to know about the podcast. If you enter your email address and subscribe, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your inbox one to two days early. And you can always drop us a line on the contact form. We read every single message and really value constructive feedback. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts and at Mr. Alex Kahn. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself.